Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on patreon.com. Kristen, Emily Vortherms, Sophia, Narissa Caves, Kevin Klocksheim, and Jolyn Gonzalez. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making the show. And for those of you who don't know, all the names that I just read, they are new supporters on Patreon uh, of the Sleepy Podcast. And Patreon is basically a site where you can go on and support artists that you like and the work that they make. There are perks for donating, at $5 for donating to the Sleepy Podcast, you get access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I read you really snoozy poetry readings and send them to you twice a month just for donating every other Monday. Every single dollar goes a long way. So if the show works for you and you want to be a part of making it and have your name read in the credits of the show so your name is emblazoned on the halls of the Sleepy Podcast forever, you can go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. That's also a really great place to reach out to me. So if you want to talk or donate, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy was illustrated by Gracie Kanan. I had such a great time reading Joseph Conrad last week. He's always been one of my favorite authors. He just has this meandering way about his writing. Probably because a lot of his writing has to do with boats meandering up rivers, zigzagging further and further into the human consciousness. I heard from a lot of you who liked that reading as well. And in anticipation of the upcoming springtime, which in Vermont seems like it will never arrive, I decided I wanted to keep reading some Joseph Conrad with his narrative, Youth. This is another kind of branch off of Heart of Darkness that I've never really read, but kind of skimming over it. It's just beautiful, beautiful writing to fall asleep to. Also, tonight's episode is for Amber. So, get real comfortable. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Close your eyes and let me read to you.
This could have occurred nowhere but in England, where men and the sea interpenetrate, so to speak, the sea entering into the life of most men, and the men knowing something, or everything about the sea, in the way of amusement, of travel, or of breadwinning. We were sitting round a mahogany table that reflected the bottle, the claret glasses, and our faces as we leaned on our elbows. There was a director of companies, an accountant, a lawyer, Marlowe, and myself. The director had been a company boy. The accountant had served four years at sea. The lawyer, a fine, crusted Tory, high churchman, the best of old fellows, the soul of honor, had been chief officer in the P&O service in the good old days when mail boats were square-rigged, at least on two masts and they used to come down the China Sea before a fair monsoon with stun sails set low and aloft. We all began life in the merchant service. Between the five of us, there was a strong bond of the sea, and also the fellowship of the craft, which no amount of enthusiasm for yachting, cruising, and so on can give, since one is only the amusement of life, and the other is life itself. Marlowe, at least I think that's how he spelt his name, told the story, or rather the chronicle of a voyage. Yes, I've seen a little of the eastern seas, but what I remember best is my first voyage there. You fellows know there are those voyages that seem ordered for the illustration of life, that might stand for a symbol of existence. You fight, work, sweat nearly kill yourself, sometimes do kill yourself, trying to accomplish something, and you can't, not from any fault of yours, you simply can do nothing, neither great nor little, nor thing in the world, not even marry an old maid, or get a wretched 600 ton cargo of coal to its port of destination, it was altogether a memorable affair. It was my first voyage to the east, my first voyage as second mate. It was also my skipper's first command. You'll admit it was time. He was sixty, if a day. A little man with a broad, not very straight back, with bowed shoulders and one leg more bandy than the other. He had that queer, twisted-about appearance you see so often in men who work in the fields. He had a nutcracker face, chin and nose trying to come together over a sunken mouth, and was framed in an iron-gray fluffy hair that looked like a chin strap of cotton wool sprinkled with coal dust. He had these blue eyes and that old face of his, which were amazingly like a boy's, with that candid expression some quite common men preserve to the end of their days by a rare internal gift of simplicity of heart and rectitude of soul. What induced him to accept me was a wonder. I'd come out of a crack Australian clipper where I had been third officer and he seemed to have a prejudice against crack slippers as aristocratic and high-toned. He said to me, You know, in this ship you will have to work. I said I had to work in every ship I'd ever been in. Ah, but this is different. 
and you gentlemen out of them big ship. But there, I dare say you will do. Join tomorrow. I joined tomorrow. It was 22 years ago, and I was just 20. How time passes. It was one of the happiest days of my life. Fancy, second mate for the first time, a really responsible officer. I wouldn't have thrown up my new billet for a fortune. The mate looked me over carefully. He was also an old chap, but of another stamp. He had a Roman nose and a snow-white long beard, and his name was Mayan, but he insisted that it should be pronounced Man. He was well-connected, yet there was something wrong with his luck, and he had never got on. As to the captain, he had been for years in coasters, then in the Mediterranean, and last in the West Indian trade. He had never been around the Capes, he could just write a kind of sketchy hand. They didn't care for writing at all. Both were a thorough good seaman, of course. And between those two old chaps, I felt like a small boy between two grandfathers. The ship was also old. Her name was Judea. Queer name, isn't it? She belonged to a man, Wilmer. Wilcox, some name like that but he's been bankrupt and dead these twenty years or more, and his name doesn't matter. She had been laid up in the Shadwell Basin forever so long. You may imagine her state. She was all rust, dust, grime, soot aloft, dirt on the deck. To me it was like coming out of a palace into a ruined cottage. She was about four hundred tons, had a primitive windlass, wooden latches to the doors, not a bit of brass about her, and a big square stern. There was on it, below her name in big letters, a lot of scroll work, with the gilt off, and some sort of coat of arms with the motto, Do or Die underneath. I remember it took my fancy immensely. There was a touch of romance in it, something that made me love the old thing, something that appealed to my youth. We left London in ballast, sand ballast, to load a cargo of coal in a northern port for Bangkok. Bangkok. I thrilled. I had been six years at sea, but I'd only see Melbourne and Sydney. Very good places, charming places in their own way, but Bangkok. We worked out of the Thames under canvas, with a North Sea pilot on board. His name was German. He dodged all day long about the galley drying his handkerchief before the stove. Apparently he never slept. He was a dismal man with a perpetual terror sparkling at the end of his nose who either had been in trouble or was in trouble or expected to be in trouble. Couldn't be happy unless something went wrong. He mistrusted my youth my common sense, my seamanship. I made a point of showing it in a hundred little ways. I dare say he was right. It seems to me I knew very little then, and I know not much more now, but I cherish a hate for that German to this day.
We were a week working up as far as the Yarmouth Road, and then we got into a gale, the famous October gale of 22 years ago. It was wind, lightning, sleet, snow, and a terrific sea. We were flying light, and you may imagine how bad it was when I tell you that we had smashed bulwarks and a flooded deck. On the second night, she shifted her ballast into the lee bow. By that time, we had been blown off somewhere on the dogger bank. There was nothing for it to go but blow the shovels and try to right her. And there we were, in that vast hole, gloomy like a cavern. The tallow dips stuck and flickering on the beams, the gale howling above, the ship tossing about like mad on her side. There we all were. German, the captain, everyone, hardly able to keep our feet, engaged in that gravedigger's work and trying to toss shovelfuls of wet sand up to windward. At every tumble of the ship, you could see vaguely in the dim light men falling down with a great flourish of shovels. One of the ship's boys, we had two, impressed by the weirdness of the scene, wept as if his heart would break. We could hear him blubbering somewhere down in the shadows. On the third day, the gale died out, and by and by, a country tug picked us up. We took sixteen days in all to get from London to the Tyne. When we got into dock, we had lost our turn for loading, and they hauled us off to a tier where we remained for a month. Mrs. Beard, the captain's name was Beard, came from Colchester to see the old man. She lived on board. The crew of runners had left, and there remained only the officers, one boy and the steward, a mulatto who answered to the name of Abraham. Mrs. Beard was an old woman, with a face all wrinkled and ruddy like a winter apple, and the figure of a young girl. She caught sight of me once, sewing on a button, and insisted on having my shirts to repair. This was something different from the captain's wives I had known on board, crack clippers. When I brought her the shirt, she said, and the socks. They want mending, I'm sure, and John's, Captain Beard's things are all in order now. I would be glad of something to do. Bless the old woman. She overhauled my outfit for me. In the meantime, I read for the first time Sartor Resartus and Burnaby's Ride to Kiva. I didn't understand much of the first then, but I remember I preferred the soldier to the philosopher at the time, a preference which life has only confirmed. One was a man and the other was either more or less. However, they are both dead. And Mrs. Beard is dead. And youth, strength, genius, thoughts, achievements, simple hearts, all dies, no matter. They loaded us at last. We shipped a crew. Eight able-bodied seamen and two boys. We hauled off one evening to the buoys at the dock gates, ready to go out 
and with a fair prospect of beginning the voyage next day. Mrs. Beard was to start for home by a late train. When the ship was fast, we went to tea. We sat rather silent through the meal. Man, the old couple, and I. I finished first and slipped away for a smoke, my cabin being in deck house just against the poop. It was high water, blowing fresh with a drizzle. The double dock gates were open, and the steam colliers were going in and out in darkness, with their lights burning bright, a great plashing of propellers, rattling of winches, and a lot of hailing on the pierheads. I watched the procession of headlights gliding high and of green lights gliding low in the night, when suddenly a red gleam flashed at me, vanished, came into view again and remained. The fore end of the steamer loomed up close. I shouted down the cabin, come up quick, and then heard a startled voice saying afar in the dark, stop her, sir. A bell jingled. Another voice cried warningly, we were going right into that bark, sir. The answer to this was a gruff, all right. The next thing was a heavy crash as the steamer struck a glancing blow with the bluff of her bow about our forerigging. It was a moment of confusion, yelling and running about. Steam roared. And somebody was heard saying, All clear, sir. Are you all right? Asked the gruff voice. I had jumped forward to see the damage and hailed back. I think so. Easy astern, said the gruff voice. A bell jingled. What steamer is that? cried Van. By that time she was no more to us than a bulky shadow maneuvering a little way off. They shouted at us some name. A woman's name. Miranda or Melissa or some such thing. This means another month in this beastly hole, said man to me as we peered with lamps about the splintered bulwarks and broken braces. But where's the captain? We had not heard or seen anything of him all that time. We went aft to look. A doleful voice arose, hailing somewhere in the middle of the dock. Judea, ahoy. How the devil did he get there? Hello, we shouted. I'm adrift in our boat without oars, he cried. A belated waterman offered his services and man struck a bargain with him for half a crown to tow our skipper alongside. But it was Mrs. Beard that came up to the ladder first. They have been floating about the dock in that miserly cold rain for nearly an hour. I was never so surprised in my life. It appears that when he heard my shout come up, he understood at once what was the matter. Caught up his wife, ran on deck, and came across, and down into our boat, which was fast to the ladder. Not bad for a sixty-year-old. Just imagine that old fellow saving heroically in his arms that old woman, the woman of his life. He set her down on a thwart, 
I was ready to climb back on board when the painter came adrift somehow, and away they went together. Of course, in the confusion, we did not hear him shouting. He looked abashed. She said cheerfully, I suppose it does not matter my losing the train now. No, Jenny, you go below and get warm, he growled. Then to us. The sailor has no business with a wife, I say. There I was, out of the ship. Well, no harm done this time. Let's go and look at what the fool of the steamer smashed. It wasn't much, but it delayed us three weeks. At the end of that time, the captain began engaged with his agents. I carried Mrs. Beard's bag to the railway station and put her all comfy into a third-class carriage. She lowered the window to say, You are a good young man. If you see a John, Captain Beard, without his muffler at night, just remind him from me to keep his throat well wrapped up. Certainly, Mrs. Beard, I said. You are a good young man. I noticed how attentive you are to John, to Captain. The train pulled out suddenly. I took my cap off to the old woman. I never saw her again. Passed the bottle. We went to sea next day. We made that start for Bangkok. We had been already three months out of London. We expected it to be a fortnight or so at the outside. It was January, and the weather was beautiful. The beautiful, sunny winter weather that is more charm than in the summertime, because it is unexpected and crisp. And you know it won't, it can't last long. It's like a windfall, like a godsend, like an unexpected piece of luck. It lasted all down to the North Sea, all down Channel. And it lasted till we were 300 miles or so to the westward of the lizards. Then the wind went round to the southwest and began to pipe up. In two days it blew a gale. The Judea, of two, wallowed on the Atlantic like an old candle box. It blew day after day. It blew with spite, without interval, without mercy, without rest. The world is nothing but an immensity of great foaming waves rushing at us under a sky low enough to touch with the hand and dirty like a smoked ceiling. In the stormy space surrounding us, there was as much flying spray as air. Day after day and night after night, there was nothing round the ship but the howl of the wind, the tumult of the sea, the noise of water pouring over her deck. There was no rest for her, and no rest for us. She tossed. She pitched. She stood on her head. She sat on her tail. She rolled. She groaned. And we had to hold on while on deck and cling to our bunks when below, in a constant effort of body and worry of mind. One night man spoke through the small window of my berth. It opened right into my very bed. 
I was lying there, sleepless, in my boots, feeling as though I had not slept for years and couldn't if I tried. He said excitedly, You got the sounding rod in here, Marlow. I can't get the pumps to suck. By God, it's no child's play. I gave him the sounding rod and lay down again, trying to think of various things, but I thought only of the pumps. When I came on deck, they were still at it, and my watch relieved at the pumps. By the light of the lantern brought on deck to examine the sounding rod, I caught a glimpse of their weary, serious faces. We pumped all the four hours. We pumped all night, all day, all the week, watch and watch. She was working herself loose and leaked badly. Not enough to drown us at once, but enough to kill us with the work at the pumps. And while we pumped, the ship was going from us piecemeal. The bulwarks went. The stanchions were torn out. The ventilator smashed. The cabin door burst in. There was not a dry spot in the ship. She was being gutted bit by bit. The longboat changed as if by magic into matchwood, where she stood in her gripes. I had lashed her myself and was rather proud of my handiwork, which had withstood so long the malice of the sea. And we pumped. There was no break in the weather. The sea was white like a sheet of foam, like a cauldron of boiling milk. There was not a break in the clouds, no, not the size of a hand. No, not for so much as ten seconds. There was for us no sky. There were for us no stars, no sun, no universe. Nothing but angry clouds and an infuriated sea. We pumped watch and watch for dear life. It seemed to last for months, for years, for all eternity, as though we had been dead and gone to hell for sailors. We forgot the day of the week, the name of the month, what year it was, and whether we had ever been ashore. The sails blew away. She lay broadside on under a weather cloth, and the ocean poured over her, and we did not care. We turned those handles and had those eyes of idiots. As soon as we crawled on deck, I used to take a round turn with a rope about the men, the pumps, and the mainmast, and we turned, we turned incessantly, with the water to our waists, to our necks, over our heads. It was all one. We'd forgotten how it felt to be dry. And there was somewhere in me that thought, by Joe, this is the deuce of an adventure, something you read about. It is my first voyage as second mate, and I am only twenty. And here I am lasting it out, as well as any of these men, and keeping my chaps up to the mark. I was pleased. I would not have given up the experience for worlds. I had moments of exultation, one of the old dismantled craft pitched heavily with her counter high in the air. She seemed to me to throw up. 
like an appeal, like a defiance, like a cry to the clouds without mercy, the words written on her stern, Judea, London, do or die. Oh youth, the strength of it, the faith of it, the imagination of it. To me she was not an old rattle trap, carting about the world a lot of coal for a freight. To me she was the endeavor, the test, the trial of life. I think of her with pleasure, with affection, with regret, as you would think of someone dead you had loved. I shall never forget her. Pass the bottle. One night when tired of the mast, as I explained, we were pumping on, deafened with the wind, and without spirit enough in us to wish ourselves dead. A heavy sea crashed aboard and swept clean over us. As soon as I got my breath, I shouted, as in duty bound, Keep on, boys. And suddenly I felt something hard floating on the deck strike the calf of my leg. I made a grab at it and missed. It was so dark we could not see each other's faces within a foot, you understand. After that thump, the ship went quiet for a while. And the thing, whatever it was, struck my leg again. This time I caught it. And it was a saucepan. At first, being stupid with fatigue and thinking of nothing but pumps, I did not understand what I had in my hand. Suddenly it dawned upon me, and then I shouted, Boys, the house on deck is gone. Leave this, and let's look for the cook. There was a deck house forward which contained the galley, the cook's berth, in the quarters of the crew. As we had expected for days to see it swept away, the hands had been ordered to sleep in the cabin, the only safe place in the ship. The steward, Abraham, however, persisted in clinging to his berth, stupidly, like a mule, from sheer fright, I believe, like an animal that won't leave a stable falling in an earthquake. So we went to look for him. It was chancing death, since once out of our lashings we were as exposed as if on a raft, but we went. The house was shattered, as if a shell had exploded inside. Most of it had gone overboard. Stove, men's quarters, and their property. All was gone. But two posts holding a portion of the bulkhead to which Abraham's bunk was attached, remained as if by a miracle. We groped in the ruins and came upon this, and there he was, sitting in his bunk, surrounded by foam and wreckage, jabbering cheerfully to himself. He was out of his mind, completely and forever mad, with this sudden shock coming upon the fag end of his endurance. We snatched him up, lugged him aft, and pitched him headfirst down the cabin companion. 
You understand there was no time to carry him down with infinite precautions and wait to see how he got on. Those below would pick him up at the bottom of the stairs all right. We were in a hurry to go back to those pumps. That business could not wait. A bad leak is an inhuman thing. One would think that the whole sole purpose of that fiendish gale had been to make a lunatic of that poor devil of a mulatto. It eased before morning, and the next day the sky cleared, and as the sea went down the leak took up. When it came to bending a fresh set of sails the crew demanded to put back, and really there was nothing else to do. Boats gone, decks swept clean, cabin gutted, men without a stitch but what they stood in, stores spoiled, ships strained. We put our head for home, and what do you believe in? The wind came east right in our teeth. It blew fresh. It blew continuously. We had to beat up every inch of the way, but she did not leak so badly, the water keeping comparatively smooth. Two hours pumping in every four is no joke, but it kept her afloat as far as Falmouth. The good people there live on casualties of the sea, and no doubt were glad to see us. A hungry crowd of shipwrights sharpened their chisels at the sight of the carcass of the ship, and by Joe, they had pretty pickings off us before they were done. I fancied the owner was already in a tight place. There were delays. Then it was decided to take part of the cargo and caulk her topwise. This was done. The repairs finished, cargo reshipped. A new crew came on board and we went out for Bangkok. At the end of the week, we were back again. The crew said they weren't going to Bangkok. 150 days passage and something hooker that wanted pumping eight hours out of 24. And the nautical papers inserted again the little paragraph. Judea. Bark. Time to Bangkok. Coles. Put back to Falmouth Leaky, with a crew refusing duty. There were more delays, more tinkering. The owner came down for a day and said she was as right as a little fiddle. Poor old Captain Beard looked like the ghost of a Geordie skipper. To the worry and humiliation of it, remember he was 60, and it was his first command. Man said it was foolish business, and would end badly. I loved the ship more than ever. I wanted awfully to get to Bangkok. To Bangkok. Magic name. Blessed name. Mesopotamia wasn't a patch on it. Remember, I was 20, and it was my first second mate's billet, and the East was waiting for me. We went out and anchored into the outer roads with a fresh crew, the third. She leaked worse than ever. It was as if those confounded shipwrights had actually made a hole in her. This time, we did not even go outside. The crew simply refused to man the windlass. 
They towed us back to the inner harbor, and we became a fixture, a feature, an institution of the place. People pointed us out to visitors. That here bark that's going to Bangkok has been here six months, put back three times. On holidays, small boys pulling about in boats would hail, Judea, ahoy. If a head showed above the rail, shouted, Where are you bound to? Bangkok? And jeered. We were only three on board. The poor old skipper mooned in the cabin. Man undertook the cooking and unexpectedly developed all a Frenchman's genius for preparing nice little messes. I looked languidly after the rigging. We became citizens of Falmouth. Every shopkeeper knew us. At the barbers or the tobacconists, they asked familiarly, Do you think you'll ever get to Bangkok? Meantime, the owner, the underwriters, and the characters squabbed amongst themselves in London, and our pay went on. Pass the bottle. It was horrid. Morally, it was worse than pumping for life. It seemed as though we had been forgotten by the world, belonged to nobody, would get nowhere. It seemed that as if bewitched we would have to live forever and ever in that inner harbor, a garrison and a byword to generations of longshore loafers and dishonest boatmen. I obtained three months' pay and a five days' leave and made a rush for London. It took me a day to get there, and pretty well another to come back. But three months' pay went all the same. I don't know what I did with it. I went to a music hall, I believe. Lunch, dined, and supped in a swell place in Regent Street. It was back to time, with nothing but a complete set of Byron's works and a new railway rug to show for my three months' work. The boatman who pulled me off to the ship said, Hello, I thought you had left the old thing. She will never get to Bangkok. That's all you know about it, I said scornfully. But I didn't like that prophecy at all. Suddenly a man, some kind of agent to somebody, appeared with full powers. He had grog blossoms all over his face indomitable energy and was a jolly soul we leaped into life again the hulk came alongside took our cargo and then we went to dry dock to get our copper strip no wonder she leaked the poor thing strained beyond endurance by the gale had as if in disgust spat out all the oakum of her lower seams she was recocked New coppered and made as tight as a bottle. We went back to the hulk and reshipped our cargo. Then, on a fine moonlight night, all the rafts left the ship. We had been infested with them. They had destroyed our sails, consumed more stores than crew, affably shared our beds and our dangers. And now, when the ship was made seaworthy, concluded to clear out. I called man to enjoy the spectacle. Rat after rat appeared on our rail, 
took a last look over its shoulder and leaped with a hollow thud into the empty hulk. We tried to count them, but soon lost the tail. The man said, well, well, don't talk to me about the intelligence of rats. They ought to have left before, and we had that narrow squeak from foundering. There you have the proof how silly it is, the superstition about them. They leave a good ship for an old rotten hulk, where there's nothing to eat to, the fools. I don't believe they know what is safe, or what is good for them, any more than you or I. And after some more talk, we agree that the wisdom of rats have been grossly overrated, being in fact no greater than that of men. The story of the ship was known by this, all up the channel, from Land's End to the Forelands. We could get no crew on the south coast. They sent us one, all complete, from Liverpool, and we left once more, for Bangkok. We had fair breezes, smooth water right into the tropics, and the old Judea lumbered along in the sunshine. When she went eight knots, everything cracked aloft, and we tied our caps to our heads. But mostly she strolled on at the rate of three miles an hour. What could you expect? She was tired, that old ship. Her youth was where mine is, where yours is. You fellows who listen to this yarn, and what friend would throw your years and your weariness in your face? We didn't grumble at her. To us aft, at least, it seemed as though we had been born in her, reared in her, had lived in her for ages, had never known any other ship. I would just as soon have abused the old village church at home for not being a cathedral. And for me, there was also my youth to make me patient. There was all of the east before me, and all life, and the thought that I had been tried in that ship and had come out pretty well. And I thought of men of old who, centuries ago, went that road in ships that sailed no better to the land of palms and spices and yellow sands, and of brown nations ruled by kings more cruel than Nero the Roman, and more splendid than Solomon the Jew. The old bark lumbered on, heavy with her age and the burden of her cargo, while I lived a life of youth and ignorance and hope. She lumbered on through an interminable procession of days, and the fresh gilding flashed back at the setting sun, seemed to cry out over the darkening sea, the words painted on her stern. Judea, London, do or die. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.